This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Options v. Nudges. Northrop Fry. Bugbears. And JFC Fuller. Cogs and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cogs and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And within that hut, we find a question from Patreon backer Mikey Ham, who questions thusly... When designing a game, how do you allow for options while still nudging players towards the archetypical experience you envision for this game? Robin, how do you do that? Well, first, uh, one of the things in my quiver as a designer is bribery. <laughs> but let's back up a sec and see why, yeah, why we're going to be bribing sure. people. Uh, graft and collusion, that's, that's what a game design is all about. So, that's right. uh, when you present a game with a core activity, uh, you have not only the core activity, but you have sort of a default identity, shall we say, the who you are in this game, uh, and so you're X who do Y. So you are right. uh, vampires engaged in intrigue, you are footloose freebooters fighting monsters in exotic fantasy locations, uh, you are a loose-knit band of uh, amateurs and dilettantes uh, looking into the Cthulhu mythos, wh- whatever it is. A team of budding accountants with a spaceship and a dream. Exactly. So in order to feel like that, the game design uh, can only do so, uh, so much. The uh, game moderator can only do so much. And at the end of the day, you also have to depend on the players to all kind of accept the premise and play within those uh, default identities. The problem that you run into, the one that uh, Mikey is asking about, is the person in the group that says, yeah, but I always play a cat ninja. And uh, certain genres uh, will be deflated somewhat if the person gets their wish and gets to play the cat ninja. So if you're uh, playing Call of Cthulhu and the person wants to play the cat ninja, then what the rules design uh, wants to do is find some way to get the cat ninja player to dig the thing that they enjoy about role-playing without having a freaking cat ninja alongside the archaeologist and the archivist and the the, the flapper. Um, and so what you want to do then is uh, one way you can do that is just exclude that as an option, right? That there's yeah. no way that you can play a cat ninja, which indeed can, I believe, in, in both Call and Trail of Cthulhu there is not. No, not, not that I know of. I mean, obviously, uh, there's the Secrets of Japan book, and who knows what you can play there. Right. Uh, but a less silly example... Uh, you know, there's the idea that, well, is the guy, is the gangster with the Tommy gun, is he, uh, within bounds? You certainly, we've had gangsters with Tommy guns appear in past Cthulhu supplements. Right. But how Lovecraftian does that feel? And so you, uh, uh, dealt with that, Ken, by, uh, serving up, uh, different tones as options so that if somebody comes to the table and says, okay, I'm a gangster with a Tommy gun, that, causes the GM to do what? Uh, that usually causes the GM to sort of uh, decide that the game is shifting into what I call pulp mode in uh, Trail of Cthulhu, or at least to 
activate some of the pulp mode rules that allow for Tommy guns to be um, uh, cool and effective in the way that the guy playing the gangster or the Tommy gun would like them to be. And more broadly, uh, Knights Black Agents, of course, has modes where uh, the, the the default archetypical experience is Jason Bourne, but certainly the world of spy uh, movies, even uh, not to say spy fiction, is much broader than that. So I introduced modes in which you could change up the rules and change up the protagonists and change up their experience of play, depending on whether you wanted to uh, move away from the keystone experience that I had in mind designing to a different but still applicable experience where you're playing some other kind of spy who is fighting some other kind of vampire. And that, of course, I stole happily and with credit from Alan Varney's uh, Paranoia, in which Alan introduced a, diff- a bunch of different modes because that game had literally different communities who played it in entirely different ways, and they would uh, misunderstand each other, and brouhaha would ensue when people who wanted to be silly were playing people who wanted it to be political satire, were playing people who wanted it to be existential horror, and none of those modes really matched each other, and so Alan cleverly built all of them into the, uh, his version of Paranoia. So, seeing how great he'd done a job at that, I said, well, the least I can do is steal from Alan Varney, and uh, in fact, it's more than most people can manage, so I was very happy to do that for Trail, and then sort of bake it into the cake for Nice Black Agents. So, that's uh, one way to uh, adjust for uh, player options, is to sort of see which options the players in the group want to go for, and then bend your experience toward that. Another way, though, is that, for example, Feng Shui has a whole bunch of different archetypes, and some of them are very directly in the sweet spot of emulating Hong uh, Kong-style action movies, and others are somewhat more exotic and weird because there is always a player in, in the group who wants to play... Uh, the weird oddball uh, character, uh, the one that sort of uh, challenges the premise. The Scooby, as we call it in uh, game design lingo. Right. Um, but if everybody plays something weird and there isn't a martial artist or a killer or, uh, you know, a karate cop or a maverick, you know, there's none of the... Uh, none nobody of the standards. in the group feels like they belong in a Hong Kong action movie, then collectively the they might all look around and go, well, I wanted to be the one playing the weirdo character, but now we're all playing weirdos and this is nothing at all like the experience that it says on the tin. So earlier I mentioned bribery. And so yes. uh, what I did with the uh, starting stats for Feng Shui archetypes, and this it goes back to the original version, but is even more so in the next one, the current one, is the stats are just plain better. The more iconic you are as an action movie type, the better your stats are. So the killer is just way better at at gun-fu than any other gun-wielding character. Uh, And so that uh, sets aside what people think of as another main goal of uh, game design, which is character balance, and says, you know what, here's a little cookie for you. If you want to play the character that will make everyone else in the group know what genre they're in, I'm, I'm going to give you a little reward for that. And then, and the notion being that the play experience is still balanced. It's just that you get satisfaction instead of mechanical advantage. Yes, exactly. So, and that you are the the player who wants to play the oddball probably also isn't super concerned about being the very best in everything, uh, because uh, in a way, you know, uh, playing that uh, sort of off kilter character is sort of a minor uh, grade premise rejection in the first place. And so if you're the cat ninja, well, you're obviously, uh, your fun of playing comes from sneaking around and being a cat, not from having the very best stats. So that you therefore are paying a slight tax, you're playing an oddball tax, or conversely, uh, the players who are playing the straight ahead characters that, re- that reflect the genre are getting a, a rebate. Uh, of, uh, of uh, toughness and, and awesomeness or, or what have you. So ultimately, though, there's a point at which you stop being concerned with options. Uh, the original Feng Shui, for example, because it had a character build system, some people used it for things that were quite far away from the core activity and the genre. And uh, I'm afraid that I did disappoint them with the new edition because I said, you know what, the, your use for this, you know, the street has found its own use for this thing, but it's not really what 
95% of the people are looking for. And so if you want to play something that's not at all the experience that I'm shooting at, I'm going to worry less about serving you because that is doing a disservice to the 95% of people who want it to do what it says it does on the back cover text. Yes, uh, sort of giving reality to the fact that the squeaky wheel may get the grease, but the squeaky wheel is also, by definition, the unusual wheel. And you shouldn't rest the whole car on it. Um, and so that gets to the, the broader question then, I, I suppose, of how, uh, how far you can go with this sort of bribery before people start to uh, kick about it. And I think that's sort of a self-solving question because if you are super concerned about character balance, you are also the one who notices the imbalanced character and you pick it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So it winds up. Uh, benefiting you uh, in the end. So uh, if, if you are picking your character on the basis of who's the bossest, you're not getting the, the weakest character. Now, you can't go so far, though, as to have the oddball characters be a complete uh, drag on everybody else uh, right. or be t- totally useless. They just have to be, you know, slightly less attractive. Like I say, you're providing a mixture of rewards, not all one kind of reward. In some games, obviously, uh, the archetypal experience is so wide, uh, like your standard F20 game, that you could probably play a Cat Ninja in Dungeons & Dragons, and if you've got the Cat Ninja supplement that some poor bastard came out with in D20 Land uh, back in the day, sure, ret- retrofit that, bang on a little bit. Most new classes turn out to be overbalanced, so you want to look at that anyway, but that's just a a matter of commercialism, not really a, a design truism, but it does turn out to be true. Bang on it make sure that it fits with the fighter and the paladin and the cleric and the warlock, and there you go. Cat ninja away. There's no one to say there aren't cat ninjas in the Forgotten Realms. And in fact, knowing Ed, I'd be surprised if there aren't cat ninjas in the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> yeah, there's probably frankly. a whole town of cat ninjas, and you exactly. know exactly what tavern they go to and what its seeming mm-hmm. capacity is. And, and uh, F20 is a great example because it divides... Uh, characters up into roles and what the skin on that role is is kind of beside the point and so uh, if you're a cat ninja well obviously you're some form of rogue Mm -hmm. and so uh, you have a couple of cool little cat ninja powers that you put on top of that but there's already the very robust setup of uh, the sneaker backstabber and the healer and the person who absorbs the damage and the weak guy who stands in the back and dishes out the damage and I think it's been a fair while since anyone has come up with a completely new role to fulfill within F20 rather mm-hmm. than what the icing is on that role. Right. And so uh, an- another answer to the question then uh, to zoom out uh, broadly again is when you're providing options to the players, they are often quite satisfied with a cosmetic option that structurally is doing what the mainline version of, of something would be. So, uh, you know, that, that, you know, to go back to Call of Cthulhu, it's like, okay, well, there's no cats in this, not, no humanoid cats and no ninjas, but would you be satisfied, uh, playing a, uh, a cat burglar, a, a burglar who has a connection to the cats of Ulthar? And, uh, then you can just sort of, okay, well, am I satisfying you just by giving you a new ability that's called talk to cats of Ulthar at right. either as an interpersonal ability uh, with an extra point in it or uh, in call, you know, at 45% or 65% or whatever it does. This does this do it for you. So uh, on a design level, that's the ability to design stuff that can be reskinned. And it's hard to think of a game that, doesn't do that, right? I mean, there are games that are so very about the specific thing that they're doing that, um, I mean, I, you could imagine, say, a game where you're, the, the goal is to play, uh, mech pilots in mech combat. Whether you're a cat ninja or not is irrelevant because what's it about is how awesome is your Gundam. So in that sort of sense, playing a cat ninja is off the table because you're irrelevant on a Gundam battlefield, although you may be relevant on the battlefield of the heart where all the true Gundam guys know the, the <laughs> yeah. real battle lies. Would you, um, would you like a, a Gundam with a cat like head that can, uh, has a cloaking device? Would I? And, yeah. and, and uh, any smart Gundamologist will have built cloaks and um, uh, anthropomorphic uh, body parts right into the Gundam rules because those are both fairly, I wouldn't say core core, but they're next one out core to the Gundaming experience. 
Um, I, th- I think there are games that are so much about mimesis. And I, th- I think we talked about Call of Cthulhu being one where the mood is super strong and you have to say, well, um, we weren't planning on a machine gunning, uh, gangster, uh, because in Lovecraft, those guys got eaten by the terrible old man. But sure, let's, let's put him in and see what happens. Would you like to play the ghost of a machine gunning gangster who's already <laughs> been eaten by a man? already been eaten by the terrible old man. Um, but, but yeah, you can, you can, you can put the gangster in and then it sort of becomes a, a job for the keeper to sort of adjust the social expectations of the party because, you know, Lovecraft, of course, is having the vapors at the thought of an Italian being on the same level as, as humans. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it can't even handle himself, but I think most GMs could sort of figure it out and then they, sort of rewrite some of the stories to instead of just be you hear about something on the docks it's like oh your mob contacts on the docks have told you about this thing and suddenly your guy becomes a valuable conduit of danger and information because he's a gangster for god's sake that's literally what they do so the thing about it is to what extent is the gameplay about a very, very specific or narrow tone and mood, and to what extent it can that be shifted by the GM uh, out of uh, out of that specific mood? You could imagine, for example, a game about Mr. James, where you really can't play a cat ninja. It just there's no role in a cat ninja for a game that is just about meeting the supernatural and being terrified by it. And it doesn't matter how stealthy you were; at some point, you're going to touch a big hairy specter and be messed up. And that's sort of what happens. And likewise, you can't really imagine playing someone from the criminal underworld in a Mr. James game because they wouldn't have the skills necessary for the first two thirds of the game, which is the slow piecing together of uh, hideous knowledge about the 17th century or whatever. Right. Right. And so the, the thing is to be aware of how, broad or narrow your premise is in terms of roping in all of the different player types. Mm -hmm. And if you discover that, uh, oh, there's no room for a combat monster in my authentic evocation of M.R. James, uh, which is the correct answer, uh, then you just have to, uh, in the introductory material, you say, guess what? That option isn't part of this game because that's uh, not what we're doing here. There's no firearm stat on the character sheet. <laughs> uh, if we did it, it would be weird. It would be unsatisfying to everybody else at the table. So uh, then, if you find you have a premise that is very laser-focused, you just uh, give up on providing uh, options for every possible demand that will be made on you and instead say, here's the deal, here's what you need to get buy-in from everybody. And if uh, a bunch of people at the table are not into that, uh, you should warn them, uh, you know, if it's a, a convention, you should say, you should take that ticket and get into another game quick because this ain't going to be your thing. This is not your, this is not your bag of dice. Right. And, and you've already been, you know, you've exhausted yourself as the poor MR James designer trying to figure out how to have non-English or non-male protagonists. Uh, women are, are pretty simple, uh, just have, a, have women protagonists, but uh, you can, you can figure out that it might be harder depending on exactly what you're trying to do to have someone who's not part of that English academic milieu. But, but again, I think that it could be done with, with a good will, but the trouble is, you know, at some point you are moving way outside MR James and you might be happier playing a different game, as you say. Right. Uh, well, on, on that note, uh, that sounds as conclusive as any. So it's time for us to, uh, uh, head on, uh, through this next, uh, commercial and see, uh, just what might possibly lie on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. 
The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The smell of old paper and the feel of tooled leather bindings and the row upon row of unshelved paperbacks we're going to get to welcome us into the book hut. And here in the book hut, a Patreon backer, Sam Harris, has asked Robin and I in what I can only describe as a layup of all layups <laughs> to discuss the work of pioneering Canadian literary critic Northrop Fry. And uh, Robin, um, since uh, you have pride of birth and pride of place... You know, have, have hadiths probably from people who have them from Northrop Fry. Do you want to start us off and right. tell us why Northrop Fry is the man? So, uh, we've talked about Fry a bunch on the show, and I think that Fry, who lived from 1912 to 1991, was extremely prolific and was writing his final, you know, most important thing came out after his death, and he was working, uh, throughout a very long career and is very, uh, important in his day. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of Fry-ins uh, in the Literary Academy now, necessarily. Uh, so uh, when An I indictment of the Fry, Literary Academy. Right. So when I mention Fry online, people will have to say, why don't you care about someone more recent? Uh, and my answer to that is, uh, he is the most relevant critic to practitioners of narrative art, uh, because he breaks down uh, different structures and shows you how they work in a way that uh, uh, postmodern or uh, semiotic critics are, are not super interested in, although there would uh, not be semiotics as we know it without Fry. So uh, he was born in 1912 in Sherbrooke, Quebec. He died in 1991 in Toronto. He taught for the vast bulk of his career at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, mere steps from where I stand as I record this. And in fact, uh, very unusually for a superstar uh, scholar, continued to teach undergrad courses uh, throughout his career uh, and thought that that was very important. Now, uh, of course, they were gigantic classes mm -hmm. uh, where uh, hundreds and hundreds of students would attend his lectures and then they would work with TAs. But, for example, my wife uh, took an undergrad course that he taught. So he's got a bunch of important works that I guess we want to go through. Fearful Symmetry in 47 was a thing that introduced him to everybody. And this was his reconsideration of the works of William Blake when nobody cared about William Blake. So he's the one who brought back uh, interest in Blake and brought him back to the forefront and basically single-handedly uh, revived uh, his reputation into into the canon. And Ken, you're a Blakeian, I think. I am. I am a Blakeian. Have you uh, read Fearful Symmetry? I have read Fearful Symmetry. And um, Fearful Symmetry is, uh, I read it after I'd read an Anatomy of Criticism, which is the one we'll get to next, I guess. And it is very much him figuring out Anatomy of Criticism while talking about Blake, where he talks about the notion of Blake's building an artificial mythology within our mythology as um, basically that all of Blake's works are part of the same sort of giant epic. And of course with Blake, that is the layup case. I mean, it's super obvious to anyone that that's what Blake is doing. It was obvious to Blake that that's what Blake was doing. Blake literally would say it, you know, uh, that all of his stories are the same story and they're all reflections of the true story. I mean, Blake is the, is this, is the easy case for, for, uh, Fryians. Um, and also, um, I think that it's, it's a really good way to look at Blake because it gives normal people, uh, People raised on sort of regular old lasers and fisticuffs literature, a, a doorway into Blake that, um, uh, that if you try sort of just to step in, uh, you, you'll get, you'll get drowned in, in Blake's sort of imagery and, and sort of the wild project without really an understanding of what Blake is trying to do. Um, uh, and, and God knows it's taken me several tours to Blake to figure out, uh, what Blake is even what Blake thinks Blake is trying to do, much less what he actually accomplishes. And I think Fry is an excellent um sort of uh not a first guide to Blake necessarily, but certainly the first guide to Blake once you know Blake well enough to know you don't know Blake and need to figure out uh, some structure to it. And I, I think Fearful Symmetry is a terrific book. So if we're going to summarize at core 
of what Fry's thought was. He was basically an, an Aristotelian in that he was looking it's a at... It's sign that you're correct if you're an Aristotelian. <laughs> uh, you're looking at a narrative and trying to figure out what its building blocks are for. And so, for example, and, and so Anatomy of Criticism is the book, his most Aristotelian of Aristotelian books, in which he uh, looks at uh, the various structures of narrative and the various uh, modes of narrative over time and tries to identify them in order that you can then look at works of literature and see what their ingredients are and see what the uh, writers are doing. And so, and, and in the course of that, he then uh, has to intuit what Aristotle probably said about comedy, but of course, famously, uh, for those who know the name of the Rose, uh, know uh, that book was lost. So part mm-hmm. of uh, Anatomy of Criticism is him reconstructing what he thinks Aristotle would have said about comedy. And so he posits uh, in that book, uh, he covers uh, modes of uh, narrative, he covers uh, archetypes, he covers a relationship to myth, and he covers genres. So uh, guess what, uh, role-playing people? <laughs> uh, weirdly, uh, a lot of this really pertains uh, to the stuff that uh, that we do. And one of the things that's in anatomy is a very respectful treatment for a absolute top rank literary critic of uh, genre fiction. So he talks about uh, science fiction and mysteries and thrillers as part of the broader romance tradition um, and says that literary law should and does apply just as much to all of those things as it does to, you know, William Blake or um, uh, William Shakespeare. Right. So if, for example, you've been uh, taught that all stereotypes are bad, uh, not just derogatory stereotypes, but stereotypes in general are in- inherently all always bad. Uh, you're uh, going to have to come to, if you want to come to terms with Fry, he's going to lay out how uh, d- many different narrative traditions from Commedia dell'arte to uh, Japanese theater rely heavily on stock characters in order to convey uh, story and meaning to you. Um, he also looks at... Uh, sort of a, the idea that uh, different modes of fiction uh, have evolved over time uh, to uh, match uh, cultural development and history. And so he says that we uh, narrative started out as the mythic. It then became uh, romantic. Uh, then there's the high mimetic, uh, the low mimetic, and the ironic. And uh, in Anatomy of Criticism, he posits, and I have the feeling that this is a big circle and that storytelling is going to go back to being mythic again. And when I mm. read that in the uh, 80s, I thought, uh, stroking my uh, beard, I thought, oh, I, I think that's maybe going to happen. And uh, guess what it looks like has happened in 2019? Myth, mythic storytelling, it's the new uh, coin of the realm, and it's a big part of why uh, nerd culture has become omnipresent culture, because, you know, the, the weirdo narratives about gods and uh, uh, demigods are now about uh, superheroes and spacemen, and it's all uh, come back in a big turning. So if you want a grand historical perspective on why we're delving back uh, even more explicitly into the realm of uh, myth uh, for good and for ill, um, you can find it in a book written in 1957. Mm-hmm. By a guy who studied Blake and Aristotle. And John Battista Vico, although I don't, I don't mandate people read Vico because that's hard. Um, but I would say that if you want to discuss literature, if you want to discuss, uh, the art of narrative and you cannot read Anatomy of Criticism, go back and read Anatomy of Criticism until you can. And then you can come talk with the grownups. Um, it sounds very, very, you know, um, uh, dogmatic even for me to say it, but that book so completely serves as a summa and a recapitulation of what is known about certainly Western literature that if you don't know enough to know, even if you disagree with everything Fry says, which I suppose is possible, um, but if you can't deal with Fry, if you can't sort of follow Fry and say, ah, here's where you're wrong, then you don't have the grounding yet. You're, you're, you're still, you know, you're, you're not tall enough to go on the ride of, of literary criticism. What do you think, Robin? Do you think that's too mean? Well, I, I would uh, strongly recommend that anyone interested in genre and in myth uh, and using those things in narrative uh, should try to come to grips with anatomy of criticism. If you want to look at 
uh, Fry's politics, which I think people suspect of being more conservative than they really are, uh, mm-hmm. look at, at a slim volume called The Modern Century, which is uh, a written version of a series of lectures that he gave in which he talks about a myth and uh, politics and public affairs in the context of the time uh, that I, he wrote that book, which is 1967. So yeah. big time ferment. And there you will discover that he is uh, both anti-Marxist and anti-McCarthyite, mm-hmm. uh, that he uh, sympathizes uh, with the uh, then uh, prevailing protest movements while having a detachment from them and seeing them as a, a sort of a, a, a poetic response to the uh, then encroaching and now omnipresent uh, world of propaganda and advertising. Mm-hmm. So he's he's not going to be, he's not talking in the language of, of later critics who focus on social justice. But uh, if you think that because Jordan P- Peterson is somewhat inspired by Fry, that uh, Northrop Fry is at fault for that, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how influence works, first of all. <laughs> But yes, um, no, Jordan Peterson is, um, well, again, if you've read Northrop Fry, you'll, you'll be able to read Jordan Peterson intelligently because <laughs> you'll recognize a bunch of symbols that don't mean anything and aren't in a structure. Uh, the, uh, thing that I, I think is the sort of the biggest block for Fry for me anyway, and maybe for you, I don't know, is the notion that over and over and over in the anatomy, he says that he, he sort of can't bring himself to believe that there is a real mountain called literature or story or poetry that he is describing. He's sort of like saying, I'm describing what would be true if there is a mountain and that it turns out that every poet and writer has acted as though there's a mountain, but I cannot say, yes, there is a mountain, there are muses, there is a hippocrine, all of that stuff, that he can't believe the myth that is necessary to the myth of creative writing. Do you think that that is a, a a fair sort of treatment of Fry? And also, do you think that you can come at Fry and, and take away from Fry without at least being willing to posit that there is a mountain, that there is a, a real place from which literature emerges and then moves along the structural patterns that Fry describes, right? I think that's a stance. In Anatomy of Criticism, uh, and to evoke my own uh, tiny efforts in this area as well. That It's an issue that I ran into with Hamlet's hit points and being the story is that you can't both be a structuralist and a reviewer at the same time, because the, the danger then is that you are saying that things that match my system are good and things that don't match my system are bad. So he's exactly. trying to avoid an anatomy of criticism saying, well, there's some uh, works of art that are great and there's some that are dumb, uh, but clearly the ones that he thinks are worth talking about are by inference the interesting things in, in the canon. But by the nature of that project, uh, what he's doing is value neutral. He's just saying, here's mm-hmm. here's the building blocks. They can be well or ill-executed, but of course I'm not going to be using examples from poems that were written in 1780 and no one reads anymore. I'm going to be doing the stuff that people knows, which allows me the next segue to uh, the other big important uh, books in his canon, which are The Great Code, The Bible and Literature, written in 1981, and Words with Power, which came out in 92. And this came from his realization, teaching undergrads, mm-hmm. uh, that people didn't understand English lit anymore because they didn't know anything about the Bible, that the uh, pervasive cultural influence of, of biblical references had all, had gone out the window. And people... Uh, just as before, if you don't know classical mythology, there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in pre-20th century literature that you're not going to get. All of a and sudden, a good chunk in 20th century literature, yeah, in fact. Uh, yes. Uh, but that, you know, his students were suddenly lost when he was trying to reference uh, the Bible, which, of course, was the book for almost all of European civilization. So yeah. uh, he then set about writing uh, these other two big masterworks, which are heavier sledding. Uh, the Great Code sort of does for the structure of biblical narrative what anatomy of criticism uh, does for secular literature. Um, and words with power is an even tougher slog because it's then about biblical language, uh, right. particularly the language of the King James Bible. And so uh, th- those are really deep dives. Uh, yeah. But uh, if you are trying to deal with uh, the uh, the literary canon such as it is, 
and uh, don't know the Bible, you know, he's, he's absolutely right that vast waves of it will be baffling to you without that grounding, which he set out to provide. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, can say that as a believing Christian, you can read both of those works with great benefit. And you could also read them as an atheist and get, as you say, the information about, oh, that's what all of Western literature was banging on about for uh, 2000 years and, and provide you with that grounding. I think that the Great Code is kind of an interesting case of, you know, it, it's sort of the worked example of anatomy where it takes the principles of the anatomy of criticism and says, I'm going to apply them to a book. And I'm going to begin by saying this is a book, not a gathering of 60-odd books, which is the way that biblical scholars treat the Bible now. Um, but he's saying that's not how writers treated it. Writers treated it as all one inerrant batch of scripture, and this is how you use it going forward within the culture. And so there's a lot of sort of uh, – it, it's not a book of biblical criticism. It's a book of criticism of – literally the Bible as, as a story. And then words with power, like you say, is, is a hard road to, to hoe. And I have not made it all the way through words of power in fairness. Um, it's good stuff, but it's, it's really deep. And there is a limit to how much, uh, of, of that, that I can justify reading in lieu of reading, you know, things that will actually turn up on paper and, uh, be part of a game for somebody. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great thing to, to, to have it at your back. And I would also recommend reading him on Shakespeare because it's a really great way to get sort of like his, his book on Blake is a great way to hop into Blake and have a structure to understand Blake from his work on Shakespeare is again, something that everyone in the last 500 years has depended on this knowledge of Shakespeare to inform at the very least conversation as well as literature and fry on Shakespeare looks again at worked examples that are core to literary uh exercise but he does there's no like one big fry book in which he takes all of shakespeare and and you know hammers him down there's just a bunch of essays about the various uh plays and various uh, habits within the plays that that he's looking yeah, at and th- that's a really accessible one and and fun to read and uh his his wit comes through a bit more in this because of mm-hmm. course you can't do Shakespeare without uh, knowing what jokes are. Um, and right. there's and no, no, sadly, Robin, you absolutely can. You can't it's do it just, properly. You, you didn't hear the, the unspoken <laughs> word properly. Um, and so, uh, and this is just scratching the surface. He wrote a ton of other stuff. He was also uh, at the risk of uh, knocking everyone listening to this unconscious. He also did a lot of uh, work on uh, Canadian culture and its relationship to uh, myth and is probably as responsible for, as anyone, including uh, his co-educator at University of Toronto, Robertson Davies, of uh, creating this idea of, of Canada as a place that was attached to notions of, of myth. Uh, so there's a ton of stuff to go through, and, and uh, I think only probably a tiny fraction of it is available in convenient ebook form. Uh, but uh, we live in a world where you can order anything, and uh, if you haven't started with Fry, it'll probably be a long time before you get to uh, his essays on uh, Canadian identity. And since I've said that twice now, let's get out of here before everyone falls unconscious. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by 
biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Prevent this podcast from descending into demonic parody alongside such Patreon supporters as... Dan Simons. Thomas Edward. Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. And Oren Gashuri. Ah, let us ramble across the plane of all of our various huts. Oh, wait a minute. There's a new hut on the plane of huts. And it's a sort of a big sort of blocky stone thing with a with a big heavy iron door. I'm going to have to roll. See if I can open the door. Oh, I've opened the door. What's on the other side of the door? Oh, no! There's gnashing teeth. There's uh, a weapons being picked up. Oh, and there's some lovely treasure in the corner because, Ken, we have entered the monster hut. This is a hut where we will periodically uh, look at a, uh, a classic monster, not a horror-style monster, but a, just a monster monster that you might encounter, say, in an in an F-20 game of some sort. And we're going to look at that monster, <laughs> and we're going to uh, ask him some questions. We're going to turn him upside down. We're going to see what the deal is uh, with this uh, monster. And uh, for the inaugural one, I thought I would select a, a monster that I associate uh, with my young days of D&D as the first uh, D&D monster that sort of had a mystique to it that oh my gosh, we've gone up far enough in level that we can encounter this monster, uh, but, oh, maybe it's going to wax us, because this is the bugbear. Uh, Ken, what uh, what initially comes to your mind when you think of uh, this uh, very quintessentially uh, uh, Gygaxian example of taking a synonym for goblin and turn it in into a very specific thing that uh, has a particular meaning in the uh, world of uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and in F20 in general. I mean, like everyone else, uh, I think of that uh, cool drawing from the D&D uh, monster manual of the little dude in his, in his down vest uh, with his uh, puffy furry head and his big old glaive vulge's arm or whatever the hell that is that he's carrying. And it's it, it like you say, it's very much, you know, Oh my god, um, uh, now we're not fighting goblins anymore, now we're fighting bugbears. I think this guy has four hit dice, you can tell from his vest. We, we've leveled up, trouble, trouble's on the hoof here. Um, uh, we did not have, in, in any of the games that I ran, or really any of the games that I played, that sort of Gygaxian naturalism going on. No one sat and sort of stroked their chin, not even me, and said, what? What of the bugbear? Uh, he was always just a big old furry ball of hit points and a disappointing treasure type. And then so my sort of expert, my experience w- with him was that. And then it was coming back around via, you know, British folklore where, you know, it turns out the word bug does not mean a uh, creepy little insect. It means creepy little ghost spirit thing that will mess with you. And uh, it's from the Welsh, I guess, a uh, boog. Or, right. well, um, as usual with etymology, it could be from a bunch of things, and that's one of them. Right. But, uh, but the Welsh have a, have a word boog that means goblin, basically. And, uh, then, uh, because people are bored sitting around the fens doing nothing, they came up with the word bugbear. And there is, I suppose, an argument that, uh, the bugbear at one point was a genuine thing that people were scared of. That they were like, don't go out of the bugbears, we'll get you. But very, very early, as far as we can tell, it was always used as a fake thing that you use to frighten children. That the word bugbear meant a bug that you thought you saw, but you didn't really see, because there was an expression, apparently, that said how easy it is to take a bush for a bear. And that meant uh, how easy it is when you're out on the moors at night to be terrified and think that a bush is a bear. And so they took the bear part of that and attached it to the boog and said, the boog bear is just a thing that will get you kids. And that became a sort of a thing. So when there was a play called The Bug Bears, there was a translation from an Italian play. The play was about guys who fake magic and um uh, are pretend sorcerers. And so even in, in the in Shakespeare times, bugbear is already a word that means Pretend scary monster, not genuine axe-wielding, puffy-down-vest-wearing, furry monster that will chop you up if you are three to five hit dice. And another word that comes out of that is uh, bo- bogeyman, uh, which right. we've already done in, in, we in have horror. Talked about the bogeyman. Uh, and so the bugbear and the bogeyman are examples of uh, different core uh, concepts that have gone way apart from each other in, in pop culture. And uh, I really love, first of all, the image that at least... 
even if it was just these scam artists in this play who were faking the idea that at some point the meaning of the word drifted enough that somebody thought, oh, it's a creepy bear <laughs> that hangs out <laughs> in the woods and is a danger to children because, uh, in fact, if I were doing a, uh, you know, an F20 world where the mandate was to take all of the familiar things and drift them, uh, the way that Grantha does with all of the sort of Tolkien-esque uh, tropes and, uh, that I would be tempted to have the bugbear again be a sort of a creepy, melty fungus bear, uh, that was hanging out in the woods, uh, trying to, uh, draw children into its den in order to, uh, uh, well, eat them. That's what creepy bears do. That it would very much be like the, the sort of the bear and bees thing that, uh, got played with so very badly in the, in the Wicker Man remake, but you would do it well. <laughs> yes, one, one always hopes to do things well. Um, so the, uh, the idea there that can sort of drift our bugbear uh, more in a uh, horror fantasy direction is perhaps rather than just being a big furry uh, bruiser, uh, he could then be sort of the receptacle of your fears. And therefore, uh, what you see when you run into him is is uh, what you've heard terrible rumors about or uh, what you've uh, what you're naturally afraid of. So. Uh, if you're afraid of bears uh, in the woods, uh, which is a good thing to be afraid of if you're near a woods with bears in them, uh, he looks like a creepy bear. If you're afraid of wolves, he looks like a creepy wolf. Um, and so the idea that he uh, has sort of a, a psychic aura around him that uh, symbolizes your fears would be an interesting uh, way to radically re-envision the bugbear. Sort of standard role, though, in F20 is... Uh, as suggested, is that if you've been fighting uh, goblins for a while, he's the big guy who comes stomping along. He's your uh, your big bruiser who uh, who you then have to contend with, and you've gotten complacent uh, bowling over all the the kobolds and goblins, and then here comes uh, the bugbear. Um, interestingly enough, in D and D settings, they are not per- uh, portrayed as big dumb guys but as big smart guys. Yeah. And so uh, how would you uh, create sort of F-20 encounters? Well, uh, you're doing an, a Hellenistic one. How would you reskin them for uh, a, a Hellenistic campaign? I think w- with me, there are uh, there are cases where uh, there are uh, various uh, Greek bad guys that got turned into bears um, or, or that uh, sacred bears were sent to maul somebody. Elisha did that in the Bible, for God's sake. And I know that the Greeks had similar scary sacred bears. So I would probably take the bugbear and make it be, like you say, a bear that something creepy has happened to. Either it's got a human soul or sensibility in it because of it's descended from the guy that got turned into a bear, or it would be a, a, a divine bear agent that is sent out to mete out unholy justice to people and that sticks around meeting out, you know, unholy harm until Dionysus remembers he's got bugbears littering the place and says, oh, right, I should send those after this guy that, that stepped to me. Um, and, and, and the, I would have them be either basically the the litter of of some mythic happening that happened in the past uh, is is there to mess with you. But I would definitely play up the bear part of it, uh, which is a part of Greek myth, not necessarily the bug, which is Northern European. Although you could also have, I suppose, the bugbears be the things that are waiting in the forests of Gaul and Britain when decent Greek-speaking people who eat olives and drink wine go up into the land of beer and pine cones and have to face... Uh, the new terrifying horrors of the forest. Uh, Lucan uh, does something with the horrors of the forest in Pharsalia that I think you could pull the bugbears into, although it's slightly out of period. But, hey, I'd love to see someone come at me on a Lucan Pharsalia. That's what I'd love to see. Um, and the idea that they're intelligent uh, give us uh, other ways to sort of uh, invert player expectations around them. So they could be the guys who are smart enough to negotiate uh, with the group of murder hobos when they show up. And they, they look, guys... Uh, uh, I can probably rip one of your arms off and, uh, these guys back here, at least three could take you, but, uh, how about you just, uh, we'll just pay you a small tribute. You go about your way, head on down. Uh, I can give you a map, uh, to the, uh, to the penguin people down at the other, during, in the icy part. And I can tell you the way to, uh, deal with them. And, uh, why don't you just leave us alone? And so, uh, that gets you your, uh, you know, the, the, uh, putative bad guy who is actually smart and can uh, be uh, reasoned with and you can strike bargains with him and uh, uh, you know you don't want to come by his door again if you've run out of hit points and spells because 
you know, he's not a nice guy, but he's a smart guy. Um, and I think you're then making more of something that is in the uh, background of the bugbear description that I think probably fairly rarely, uh, actually uh, comes up. Um, there, there are, uh, versions of D&D in which you can play the bugbear as a character and, uh, you can then, uh, you know, have a, a fun, big, furry, uh, sort of, uh, kick-ass, life-size Muppet as a character, and that can be sort of fun in a more kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek way. Yeah, if you didn't want to, the, the, the uh, obloquy that comes with playing an ogre, you can play a bugbear. Well, uh, I think now that we've... Uh, and, and, and I guess my final observation would be that when you see the new, groovy, beautiful art of them in which they are basically sort of uh, mega-orcs, that there's a, a charm that is is lost, that the, you know, hand-drawn sort of cartoony version that uh, people of our uh, age uh, band uh, initially dealt with. And I wonder, I guess that brings us into the sort of philosophical question of uh, what, what's more fun, the, the silly Silver Age bugbear or the uh, realistically rendered big bruiser of today? But uh, I, that's such a philosophical question that it's not for the Monster Hut. So let's no. uh, head on out of this initial Monster Hut and see what else is waiting for us on the Plain of Huts. Cthulhu, Haster, who's the great old one and who's the greatest old one? Time to find out. It's WrestleNomicon! Con, 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 the card game from veterans of Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Epic Spell Wars, and Delta Green. As a fan of all things good, Max Nestorowicz said, I've never played something that captures the rhythm and back and forth of a fighting game like WrestleNomicon from Arc Dream Publishing. Plus, it's filled with eldritch horror goodness, premium puns, and A-plus artwork. Back it while you can. Find WrestleNomicon Con Con at Kickstarter or at WrestleNomicon.com. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, where we will find the Edwardian parlor. Oh, wait. Uh, hey, glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky. Let's give you a little wave. Uh, still glowering. Oh, well. Uh, here in his smoking jacket, here's the consulting occultist. And it's a good thing, because Patreon backer Chris Calley wants to know the lowdown on the occult fascist tank guru, JFC Fuller. So uh, that's a bunch of categories. That is. That is that is a full job. That's a full business That's card. Three different ways uh, to get at this historical figure. Aptly so, because the law of threes meant a whole lot to him. Do we start with the the normalist version of uh, JFC Fuller and uh, and radiate out from there? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that one of the things about Fuller that is so fun and weird is that. He sort of blended the three, um, and so Fuller himself would, would argue that you can't tease the, the occult or the spiritual out of his thoughts on, uh, warfare. It was right and there, he, yeah. he certainly couldn't separate his, his notions of fascism from his notions of, of the way that the world is organized. I, I, you can maybe, uh, say that, uh, his notions of, of tank warfare while, uh, perfected by the Nazis are not inherently Nazi because there isn't anything particularly Nazi about attempting to understand concentration of force and the utility of force because that is, after all, what war is all about and has been since Marathon at least. Okay, so but but, but give us the five W's. Who is this guy? All right, the five. He's his name is John Frederick Charles. So if you're thinking JFC stood for something else, it just stands for what you say whenever you read his biography. Um, nickname Bony. Because he's kind of Bonaparte, not because he has a big creepy skull head, which he also does. And he was a army officer. He fought in uh, World War One. Uh, he planned the tank attack at the Battle of Cambrai that broke the German lines. And his belief was always that you have to break through the German lines. You can't just smash into the German lines and try and grind them down, that that is just a way to lose men to no good purpose. And in total fairness to Boney, he was not wrong about that, that breaking the German line is something that, you know, Pershing, for example, also saw when he arrived in France and said, 
why are we doing the part where we just stand in the trench and die? Why don't we go through and around? That seems like a better plan. And uh, the British would patiently explain this because they're terribly bad at warfare, and the French would, ter- would explain <laughs> there are machine guns. But eventually, people figured it out. And among the people that figured it out was our boy Fuller. So that's the that's the W. The where, of course, is Britain. He was born in Sussex. And then uh, his thesis is basically that operation of war depends on the using of force against the opponent such that your force uh, demoralizes or uh, gets, you know, around the opponent's force. And then you break their force down by either just shooting them a bunch or cutting them off from supply or whatever else you do, that it's force on force. And this notion of forces in motion and conflict is the thing that eventually made its way into the United States military theoretical structure via a guy named John Boyd, who was a big reader of Fuller, although as far as I know, did not share any occult, uh, any Nazi tendencies. Um, although he act, he did have sort of a mystical uh, viewpoint informed, uh, not least by reading Fuller, but also by, you know, being a sort of, um, uh, I think he did martial arts is what got him into the sort of the notion of of everything being about force and either resistance or yielding in a, in a, uh, a strategic way. Right. And, and it's, uh, there's an ironic, even demonic contrast with Northrop Fry because Fuller is also a great systematizer. He's a maker of lists and, and matrices. So he's the, yeah. the nine principles of war and he breaks things down into, into different, um, frames of seeing the battlefield and, and including the cosmic frame. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the spiritual frame is something that he uh, talks about as well. And that comes from his association with uh, Crowley, which uh, begins in uh, 1907. And uh, later, not soon, uh, long after that, he realizes that it's okay that he's a magician, but now Crowley suggests that he's a, a bisexual, so he can't be associated with that. And so he he sort of breaks... It's bad for your career. Yeah. And so <laughs> he, he he breaks with uh, with uh, Crowley officially, but his, the, the Thelemite thought is all through... Uh, his life and, and, uh, through his military doctrine. Yeah. Um, the, the notion that you're exercising will at a distance, that's military tactics, right? That your will is that, that, that he'll be taken or that that enemy cavalry, uh, be disrupted. You exercise your will at a distance as a, as a strategist. That's magic is, uh, what Fuller would say and what Crowley, I suppose, would say as well. <laughs> as you suggest, they rapidly parted ways when, uh, Fuller said, you've got to keep me out of things and you can't be using my name anymore because it's bad for my career. And Crowley's like, why on earth would I want to use your name? You're just a cog in my wheel. <laughs> I'm Alistair Crowley and you're nothing. And that you don't talk to bony Fuller that way, even before World War One, much less uh, after. And so Fuller sort of goes off on his merry way, but he does not abandon Crowleyite thinking uh, magically. And he continues to work on the Kabbalah and on yoga are his sort of big uh, beliefs that Kabbalah is the way the world is structured and yoga is your response to it. And that those both uh, play into his uh, notions of uh, the organization of military science. As you say, lots of trinities uh, overlapping and, and readjusting and, and wheeling around and then lots of um, motion and, and stasis and force and resistance uh, as, as part of the yoga that there's this component to the world that you are acting in concert or in opposition to. And so uh, listeners, you may be wondering, uh, what if I want my Trail of Cthulhu characters to meet uh, Fuller in the worst decade in the 1930s? What is he up to? And what's he up to, Ken, is he's decided that uh, you're only really going to be able to introduce proper military doctrine, that is to say, his military doctrine, if you get rid of that pesky old democracy. And so he uh, then allies with uh, Oswald Mosley in 1933 and uh, by 1935, he sort of switched from you must break the German line to, you know what? The German line looks pretty darn good as I stand here as the only Anglo observer looks uh, awesome. watching these tank maneuvers. So sexy. Fuller becomes the first guy who you avoid at wargaming conventions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's got an Africa Corps t-shirt before it was cool. Before it was cool. He was, he was very much uh, believed that you could not have a democratic warfighting, uh, machine work correctly. And again, if you've worked with the British general staff in World War One, I'm not going to tell you that is necessarily an illegitimate, uh, conclusion to draw. It's not, it turns out not to be correct, but I get it. 
I get what he's saying. Uh, the Soviets, interestingly, do not pick up Fuller. They have their own way of fighting uh, the, the Nazis, um, which has not got anything particularly to do with communism. It's about uh, having to maintain long supply lines with a primitive supply system. But anyway, Fuller is very much enamored with the tank as the as the new, as the sort of embodiment of force. There's a anecdote where in uh, 1939 he's at Hitler's birthday parade watching a tank army go by, and Hitler says, uh, "What do you think?" of your children and fuller says they grow up so fast i barely recognize them which is a lovely anecdote except for you're talking to hitler you creep um and in, indeed you, you, you can't talk to hitler like that and get a command position in the british army so even though he is probably would have been a pretty great tank commander they don't put him in charge yeah, of anything that, that old in Bennett, world war Hitler's ii birthday party thing is <laughs> right it's just, it's just, I, I'm sorry, you know, we can either have Kim Philby in charge of spies or you in charge of tanks, and we've picked which we'd rather do. Um, it's only because he's good friends with basically the chief of the general staff that he doesn't wind up tossed in the jail, and lots of people later on say, why didn't you toss Fuller in jail? Uh, because it's not like he, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't come crawling back just because Nazi principles left Germany in ruins and millions dead. He says, ah, they should have won. <laughs> they, they had, they had, they had it coming. They were gonna, they were gonna bring it. Uh, if only blah, blah, blah. I mean, he stays fascist well after the war, which I guess credit to the sticking to it, but bad, wrong. Don't stay fascist, especially after World War II. It's just embarrassing yeah, for start, God's start sake. Start being fascist. Don't continue being fascist. Especially right. don't continue believing uh, that the uh, wrong side uh, won the war. That's and, and absolutely don't say it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean maybe if maybe if you're um, uh, uh, the deposed King Edward, you can say it, but not anyone lower ranking than that uh, should you be saying well, that. Well, this is somewhat refreshing though, because often we talk about these figures and we're afraid to make them full on villains in yeah. our Trail of Cthulhu scenarios because it but would that be, problem has been solved. Right, we'd be blackguarding <laughs> a historical figure, but this guy. Is a blackguard already. He deserves a little blackguarding. Yeah, we just have to figure out how to use him in a scenario. So, uh, how do we get our Trail of Cthulhu characters to Hitler's birthday party to overhear him saying that? And then what <laughs> villainy is he up to in the uh, mythos world? Well, I mean, you can get to Hitler's birthday party by the good old Indiana Jones method of you're tracking some occult artifact into the Ananerba and it's being, it's going to be presented to Hitler at his birthday by a, by a, a giddy and sweating Himmler and you have to steal it or substitute something that's not going to work so that Hitler says occult schmuckult let's just stop everyone with these awesome tanks and that's where you hear that um, I think that you can get into Fuller very very easily because as you say uh, or as, as as we said he's uh, still got the occult going on so you posit some fascist mystical lodge which is probably not even that big of a posit um, and then they are being uh, kept informed on the DL by Fuller, who is using them to mount a surprise and offensive action against England by uh, magically switching England into into uh, polarity, into fascism, uh, and not coincidentally putting him back in charge of the military. Uh, so that can be their their sort of goal is to make a political working, but is also a source source working, and you can track into there, and then uh, the bad guys can be using Boney Fuller's um, uh, methods against you, where, you know, you think it's just the simple, ordinary, you know, um, uh, we're going to sneak up and peek in your windows, and they're like, okay, now it's time to concentrate force and destroy these guys and maybe they kill all of your um uh, your your npc helpers or something or they uh have a surprisingly uh a good bunch of thugs that come out and fight you because they're using yoga to gain uh, back uh, health points in the fight because they're using the the principles of war and the secret trinities of combat against you uh well that's a that's a campaign that uh, that runs itself it also makes me think of a sandbox campaign where you the first scene is at hitler's birthday party and you have to decide which of the uh, five or six hideous creeps there uh, you then want to make the the main focus of your pr pursuit after that? And then, uh, <laughs> Record scratch. That's me at Hitler's birthday party. I bet you want to know how that happened. <laughs> and you especially want to know which one of them I went after afterwards. Right. And, the, and who are we going after? Yes. Well, I mean, the, you pan along and you see the, the, the line, the lineage of creeps. And then it's your character standing there and sweating in his SS uniform. Yes. Like, uh, like Indiana. You, you, you've got your tray Jones. of champagne is here. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it's like record scratch. 
Uh, and then, yeah, you could use that as the sort of, you know, this is the cover of the magazine. We open it. Your character's job is to get to that scene and play it out. And if you can get to that scene with as much magical and uh, a tactical reinforcement as possible, hey, maybe you get to blow up Hitler. That'd be awesome. Yep. You can you can beat Tarantino to it. Get him, get him a little mm-hmm. earlier. Or put the magic whammy on him so that he orders a bunch of dumb things like invading Russia. <laughs> Well, this is turning into Ken's time machine, so uh, <laughs> we better declare an end not only to this segment, uh, but an end to this uh, this podcast. But we'll be uh, back next week, and looking into my crystal ball, I think there might be a giant pile of books to paw through. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you are too. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Solve the bugbear of podcast funding by joining such Patreon backers as Peter Williamson. Raphael Pabst. Andrew Laliberti. Andrew Miller. And Steve Kay. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Fun Ruiner. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>